Praise the Lord. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Uh, today, uh, I don't think that my bad jokes are appropriate. Uh, I want to. I want to just warn you uh, that today is heavy. Today starts a very timely sermon series that I'm so thankful that God has orchestrated for our church. Uh, today's heavy one because our text is very heavy, and two, I think we can agree that our world that we live in right now, it also feels heavy. We have brothers and sisters around us in our church, in our city, in our country that are confused, tired, angry, and grieved. Not not only do we have a a global pandemic where sin has found itself to fester, where emotional instability and spiritual apathy are high, but on top of this, over the past two weeks, we've watched video after video, we've seen story after story, and heard cry after cry of a common life situation that's been happening for hundreds of years in America that I have personally never experienced. I've never had... I've never had to look at my, my son, who's five years old, and say, son, your life is going to be different because of the color of your skin. Son, you're going to be treated differently and looked at differently because of the color of your skin. I've, I've never had that conversation because I've never had to have that conversation. Yet this is the common conversation in reality for brothers and sisters, moms and dads that have children that don't look like me, and, this, and it grieves me, right? it, it pains me. And what's been happening, uh, I'll never fully understand because I've never uh, lived this reality. And when I, when I look out into the world, it reminds me that our, that our world uh, is groaning, right? The sin is real and the redemption is needed. And yet I'm, I'm so hopeful because I know and believe that God's word is sufficient, to help guide us and navigate us. God's word is living and active, and the Spirit of God is guiding our church and has led us to a book that mimics our days. God has led us to a book that speaks to both physical and spiritual oppression. God has led us to a book that speaks into oppression and slavery and racism and mass genocide and abortion. And most of all, uh, spiritual brokenness and spiritual depravity, showing and making very clear that redemption is needed, that a redeemer is needed. And, and then, this book, it, often, it also models for us today how God uses weak, ordinary people, guided under the hand of God, being obedient to God and his word, to carry out God's mission of redemption. And something we're going to see so clearly in this book called Exodus, is that God's means of redemption. It's, it's most of all spiritual. God's means of redemption is spiritual. Jesus makes this very clear. Our greatest form of oppression is spiritual oppression. We're in a land of spiritual darkness where redemption is greatly needed, where the consequences of sin are eternally devastating. Spiritual oppression is the greatest form of oppression. This cannot be ignored or de-emphasized. The danger in the church Uh, is to only seek physical redemption and and de-emphasize the need for spiritual redemption. But what we can see and observe throughout the entire Bible is that God's form of redemption, it doesn't stop stop with spiritual redemption. God's form of redemption is also physical, it's social, it's economic, and political. Now, uh, the other danger 
The overcorrection is to only speak is only to seek spiritual redemption and to renew, ignore any type of physical redemption. And what we'll see and observe from, from the book of Exodus is that spiritual redemption often follows and is paired with is paired with a form of physical redemption. We, we see this idea true in everyday life. Uh, if someone's really hungry and they're asking for food, uh, it's really hard for them to listen uh, to their, because to their, their greatest spiritual need when the physical need is dominating their attention. We need both. We see, we, we see this throughout the entire Bible. We have to do both. We declare the truth and we also display the truth. And all of this, you know, I, I'm wanting and I'm praying for our church to mimic the ministry of redemption that God puts on display in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a book that models mission and redemption. We want, we want our mission uh, to model God's mission. We, we, want God, we want what God celebrates, we want to celebrate. What God does, we want to do. What God protects, we protect. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to see our big idea for today. And it's that redemption is needed for the oppressed. Redemption is needed for the oppressed. I want, I want to remind you that today is heavy uh, because our text is heavy. It's weighty. Yeah, I want to be very clear on this. The point, uh, the point we're making today uh, is the main point of the text. This doesn't come from the news cycle. And so I don't want us to miss the timeliness of this, that this is the Lord's providence, uh, the Lord's direction for our church. And before we jump into the text, I want to remind us of, of a few dangers, of, of three specific dangers uh, that we face when we come to God's Word, specifically with culture in mind. Uh, the first danger is just to ignore culture, right? to keep our heads in the sand and do nothing uh, and not speak into our culture. And we know, we know that Jesus and Paul in the New Testament uh, spoke into culture. They're speaking into culture. They teach using the culture around them. You know, they didn't retreat. They spoke into culture. The second danger is to ignore God's word and allow culture to be the dominant voice of reason. And, and this is especially tempting and challenging now when there's so many voices, right? There's so many voices that are speaking in. There's a lot to sift through. Uh, we need to have the Bible speaking into culture, right? We can't, we can't ignore this. God's word is living and active. The, the third danger, which is, which is very subtle, uh, is to look at God's word through the lens of our culture. Right? Trying to understand God's word, but making culture the primary voice of reason. Because the, the subtlety of this, and I believe this is the most common danger, uh, because, because of that, I think it's the most common danger, but we don't, we don't read uh, culture into the Bible. We have to read the Bible into culture. There's a distinct difference, there's, but there, it's subtle, but it's, uh, it's a very dis- there's a very distinct difference in how this plays out. And so uh, what we must do as the church is to look at our culture right, through the lens of God's word. Right? We have to use God's word to look into culture. We don't read the Bible through the lens of culture. Uh, God's word are the tracks that we stay in. Okay? And so uh, this is what we're going to try to do in Exodus 1. You know, I'm going to read the first seven verses in Exodus 1. Uh, that give a bit of the backstory that kind of lead us into Exodus. And then we're going to look at the rest of the chapter, uh, walk through the story. I'm going to make three observations specifically about oppression uh, along the way. And then uh, after we get through the story, uh, I'm going to make two points on the back end of our time. Uh, so we've got three observations, and then we're going to have two, two quick points on the end. 
And and I'm going to give these to you as we go. So with that said, look with me at Exodus 1, starting in verse 11. This is what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, God, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. A few quick things that we see here uh, is that the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, we saw Joseph, a young man, get sold into slavery to Egypt by his brother, by his brothers, and God turns this terrible thing, God turns it into good at the end of the book of Genesis. And then we see Joseph and his family, they stay in Exodus. And then look back at what it says in verse 5. It says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Uh, Jacob uh, did as God said in the book of Genesis. Uh, He was fruitful and he multiplied. He did exactly what God told him to do. And then he and all his brothers, they later died. And the next generation continued to multiply, filling up the land of Egypt. And so uh, what we'll see in Exodus chapter 1 and in Exodus chapter 2, these two chapters, they actually cover a lot of history. You know, there's, there's, they, call, they cover far more than a lifetime. And this is what happened next. Look at verse 8. It says, Now arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So I'm going to stop there. And as we've said, we've got three observations that we're going to make along the way, specifically about oppression. And, and here's the first observation. Oppression comes from a struggle for power. We see this play out uh, politically in verse 8. It says there was a new king. This, and this new king, uh, it said in verse 9, it says there, he said there was too many for Israel. It says there were too many and they were too mighty is what it says in verse 9. There was a, there was a threat to this new king's power, his political power. And so uh, this new king used his power to try to oppress the power that was rising to keep them from remaining powerful. This was, this was true almost 4,000 years ago in the book of Exodus, and it's also true today. You know, I want to I warn you guys, just take a deep breath, and because uh, we're far removed from the oppression in Exodus, but we're not uh, far removed from examples that we see today. And, and I think this will actually help us as we think about what we've been seeing, uh, getting into the, the Exodus, the setting of Exodus 1, just to understand the emotions that are happening in Exodus 1. You know, there's, there's, there's a number of examples of this that we will wrestle with uh, that we see out in our world. But the loudest example that I think we can agree on right now is that uh, what we see in a culture, in this culture moment that we need to process and think through biblically, is the evidence of oppression that black people in America have experienced for the past 400 years. You know, if we, we look out at history, uh, we see black Americans oppressed, similarly to what we see in Exodus 1, you know, oppressed politically, socially, economically, and physically. We know the tragic history of slavery 
uh, the political oppression put in place through Jim Crow laws by voting rights and segregation that has continued to have lasting and lingering effects for us today. We've seen uh, physical uh, oppressions from lynchings and beatings and murdering uh, and injustice from those in power. Uh, And not to mention the lingering effects of social oppression that black people in America continue to experience today. And so it's it's not hard to find people in our country whose grandparents were brutalized by those in power. It's not hard to find people whose whose uncles were, were lynched by those in their city. It's not hard to find people whose brothers or friends were shot or killed because of fear brought on by the color of their skin. The events that we've seen over the past two weeks is evidence of 400 years of oppression and trauma. You know, it's, it's very clear that people are hurting, and we, and we need, when people hurt, we listen. And we have brothers and sisters in our church, uh, in our city, in our country, uh, who have experienced or can, I, can deeply identify with, with the, the, the similar physical trauma that is portrayed in, in Exodus 1. You know, racism is the, is the, is the current a hot topic right now, uh, which as the, as the church we're called to deal with. And not just when the news cycle ends. Uh, when people cry out or when they're tired of crying out, we don't, we don't ignore it. You know, we, we listen and we act. And when the news cycle ends, the church continues to advocate, to seek physical redemption. Right? We, want to, we want to see a picture of God's kingdom here on earth now. Right? But I must say, the heaviness of Exodus 1, uh, it does not stop with racism. May we also not forget in our culture those that are also powerless and oppressed that are not in the current news cycle, like the thousands of children uh, and women that are enslaved in the sex, in the sex slave industry where, where 12 times a day they're being abused and dehumanized as a result of their loss of power. And not to mention the oppressed and the powerless inside the womb, which we'll see as a a similar picture of this in Exodus 1. And so what we see in Exodus 1 and in our culture is that slavery, systemic racism, sex slavery, and abortion are all manifestations of oppression and and it's an an abuse of power. uh, This should grieve us and cause us to cry out for redemption. Uh, if If we see these problems as merely political, we have misunderstood the grave darkness in the world. Yes, yes, there's, there's political oppression, but we must remember that this is primarily a struggle of darkness. This is the world that we live in. Right? This, is, this is the world that we need to, to wrestle with and be grieved over and cry out for. We, we must recognize that these are all echoes of a greater cosmic problem where evil and sin run rampant because of the fight for God's ultimate power over the universe. Satan and evil exist because of a power struggle, because of sin in our hearts. Sin, the greatest form of oppression, manifests itself because of our quest for our own personal power. (laughs) I hope this is clear for you. That oppression, the greatest form uh, that oppression comes from a struggle for power uh, this is weighty, right? This is Exodus 1. It's heavy. And look what happens next, starting in verse 12 in Exodus 1. It says, but, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter 
with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So amidst their oppression, uh, the people of Israel continued to multiply. You know, this theme runs throughout the entire Bible. Uh, when, when God's people are oppressed, God's people multiply faster. Why? Because God, who has the ultimate power, is over all, including the oppressor. Pra- praise the Lord that God cannot be stopped by political, economic, physical, and social oppression. Just, just so we can continue, the climate, uh, to understand the climate of Exodus 1, now, I want to I take a note of some of the language that we see here in some of what we just read. Ver- verse 12 says, uh, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Right? They were in dread of them. Uh, they did not like them. They, they dreaded them. And then it says in verse 13, it says, they ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. They were ruthless to them. They enslaved them as property, not people. And then it says in verse 14, They made their lives bitter with hard service. The the recurring theme here is great oppression, but it's tied to bondage. It's tied to slavery, being enslaved. And then the the trauma continues in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Pua, when you, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. This is devastating. There's a top-down pressure from Egypt, in Egypt, for mass genocide, for killing newborn sons, specifically sons, because there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a threat to power for military might. And the sons could come in and, and possibly overthrow them by their, by, in, the milita- in a military form. So they're trying to kill the sons, which led to our next, at least to our next observation. Number two, oppression sometimes ends in violence or death. Oppression of the unborn across the globe today right, tragically ends in abortion. Oppression in the sex slave industry uh, is by far the most violent industry for women in the United States. And then, as we've seen more recently, oppression uh, in racial injustice historically has ended in lynchings, shootings, and physical harms, sometimes ending in death. Sometimes ending in death. It's tragic, right? We, we mourn, we grieve, and we cry out to God. This is Exodus 1. You know, uh, I, I say sometimes because this is not always the case. Uh, we, would, we would be foolish to say everything always ends poorly. Those who, are, those who are put in difficult situations like these often have someone come in and advocate for them. And we praise God for this. We want to celebrate those that use their power rightly. This is good. We want, to, we want to celebrate righteousness. We want to celebrate those that advocate for the unborn, that advocate for the sex slave industry, that advocate for racial injustice, and advocate for every, single, every other form of injustice that the world experiences. Which is why these next few verses are so great. It's our glimmer of hope uh, out of Exodus 1, Okay. Look what verse 17 says. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I don't want to miss this, okay? These midwives, they were heroes. 
They were advocates. They stepped in. They did something. They spoke up in intense and dark times. They put their comfort aside. They did not retreat. They stepped in and they defended the cause of the oppressed, which leads us to our third observation. The oppressed need advocates. I love this. Okay, uh, Two of these heroic advocates, these two midwives, these two women, they're remembered. They were named Pua and Shifra. God saw it fit to remember these advocates, which means beautiful one and splendid one. And Pharaoh, uh, this, this great king, he, he had no name in the Bible. It was just Pharaoh, which is not, Pharaoh's not a name. That's just a title. It's just a generic title showing that these, uh, these evil kings, their, their, their names are not worth remembering. But these two midwives, they feared God, and they defended the cause of the oppressed, the unjust. They defended the cause of the weak. And today, and until all these things are eradicated, as Christians, we do the same. We defend the cause of injustice. We defend the cause of the oppressed. We march and speak up for the unborn. We march and speak up to end sex slavery. We march and speak up to end racism. And we march and speak up to end every other cause of injustice that dehumanizes people. We defend and speak up for the unborn in the womb and also for for those outside of the womb that are in slavery. And also for those that have dealt with hundreds of years of oppression and injustice. Biblical advocacy goes from the womb to the tomb. This is so important for us as a church. Biblical advocacy looks past politics, and it defends the cause of the oppressed. And this is exactly what these two midwives did. If if a political ideology keeps someone from recognizing, fighting, and advocating for any type of injustice, that political ideology, it needs to be dismantled. Biblical advocacy uses someone's power, position, voice, and platform, and and an influence to defend the powerless in all cases. These, these midwives use their position, their power, their voice, and their, and their platform to defend these helpless babies. They didn't sit back and watch. They stepped in, they spoke up, and they acted. It says God remembered them. Look what it says next. This is, this is how they use their, their, their voice, their power, and their platform to advocate. Verse 18 says, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Why have you done this? This is great. The king comes to the midwives and and asks, why are you letting them live? Can you imagine how unpopular this was? How this was possibly disrupting the peace? It would have been easy to stay quiet, which leads us to remember that being an advocate means going against the grain. It means ruffling feathers and with both grace and truth, with love and kindness. Speaking true words, even when they're unpopular, even when they're not liked, or possibly even politicized. It means, it means you fear God and not man, which is what these midwives did. Look at what happens next, how they, how they use their voice and their platform. Verse 19 says, The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because of the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I think this is kind of funny. The midwife said, these Egyptian women, uh, he says they were vigorous. Now, I've been in a labor room. Uh, Mamas are vigorous regardless, okay? Uh, So either these midwives lied to Pharaoh, which is uh, certainly possible and some believe to be true, 
or these women gave birth uh, on their own. You know, I, I really don't know. We just know what it says. Regardless, whatever, whichever it is they did as a form of advocating for these babies, they protected them with their voice, their platform, and their position. And then it says, God dealt well with them in verse 20. They feared God, not Pharaoh. And God dealt well with them, blessed them, and gave them families, and they multiplied. How great, how great is this? Blessing followed their advocacy. They risked their life. They risked their reputation, their jobs, their platform, and their image. And they did not care what people thought, and they defended the cause of the weak and the oppressed. Listen, this is so important for us as a church. Because in every issue, the news cycle ebbs and flows. And when the, when the culture speaks out, the church must speak in with truth. Right? We, must, we must sift through the culture with biblical truth. We have the duty to look at our culture through a biblical lens, and we can't let politics, apathy, and comfort keep us from advocating for the oppressed. Listen, be, being an advocate is going to be messy. It's going to ruffle feathers. We're, we're going to make mistakes, but it's necessary. It's, it's, it's necessary for the millions of babies that don't have a voice. It's necessary for children and women that are enslaved for evil pleasure whose voice has been put in danger. And it's, it's necessary for those who are faced with being treated differently because of the color of their skin whose voice has been ignored, devalued, or muted for over 400 years. Many, many would say these midwives were left with either lying or saving the babies. And quite possibly... They lied to save the babies. <laughs> this, it was messy. It, it wasn't, wasn't clear-cut. But they defended the cause of the oppressed. In the, in the midst of a politicized and sticky situation, I'll say it again. When the culture speaks up, the church speaks in with truth. And then when the culture stops speaking, the, the church, we have to keep defending. We keep defending. When the, church, when the culture stops speaking, the church keeps defending. These women advocated for the oppressed. I, I pray that our church will be known for how we advocate, for those who are hurting, in danger, tired, and who don't have a voice. This is, this is what God did. And so we do the same. And then look what happens next. Mean Pharaoh, he comes and steps in and puts even greater social pressure on God's people. Look, look at how uh, our dark and heavy chapter ends in verse 22. I'm, I'm going to read verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he tried to first get the midwives to kill them, uh, to kill their sons, but it didn't work. So then Pharaoh comes in and commands all people, everyone, all his people to do it, to throw their sons in the Nile River. He made, uh, Pharaoh made oppression and mass murdering. He made it the social norm. And then the chapter ends. <laughs> uh, talk about a tough text. Right? This, is, this is heavy. It, grieves, it should grieve us. And after we read this, we're, we're left with heavy hearts. We're burdened. We're reminded that of our big idea that redemption is needed for the oppressed. Although our chapter ends here down in the pit, uh, let me remind you that God's story does not end here. You know, next week, Jason's going to cover uh, chapter 2, introducing Moses the Mediator. In chapter one, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are setting the scene for Exodus. Uh, chapter 1 shows the culture, climate, the oppression, uh, and evil in the day. And then chapter 2, which is next week, switches the scene and it introduces Moses. But then at the end of chapter 2, 
after Moses is introduced, there's a great picture of hope. This is what Exodus chapter 2, the end of chapter, chapter 2, starting in verse 23 says. It says, during those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And listen to this. This is when it gets, well, this is such good news. It says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then, as we know, after this, God acted. God acted. So, so hear this. In the midst of great heaviness, the oppressed cried out to God. God heard, God remembered, and God saw, and God knew. God understood all that we were going through. He heard it. He saw it. He knew it. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is such good news that God hears, God knows, and God sees all of those who are oppressed. In God's kindness and providence, God acts on oppression by providing advocates and mediators. And as well as we'll see later in the series, he, he provides miraculous works of God. In the midst of great oppression, in the midst of what seems to be like great chaos and disorder, God is not surprised. God does not panic God steps in and God redeems because it's clear the oppressed need a redeemer. The oppressed need a, a mediator. The oppressed need an advocate. And so uh, what does redemption look like? What does God's redemption look like? There, there's, two, there's two things that we see in Exodus about redemption. Uh, two quick points I want to make here in the last six or seven minutes of our time. Number one, God's redemption is physical. And number two, God's redemption is spiritual. We've already talked about the physical oppression that we see in Exodus in our world today. Uh, but what we can't ignore is that physical oppression also requires physical redemption. Just like, just like God's redemption for Israel, it was practical and physical. We see our first closing point here showing that, number one, God's redemption is physical. If God's redemption is physical and practical, then, also, then our forms of redemption must also be physical and practical. Our, our ministry of rec reconciliation, that phrase comes from 2 Corinthians 5, our method of redemption and advocacy and living out God's mi mi mission, it must mimic God's method and mission. And so what does this mean? If a child is in danger, if a baby's life is at risk, if a woman is enslaved to sexual oppression, if racism in our country still exists and continues to reveal over and over that, that it still exists, then we must show our ministry of reconciliation, we must show it in a physical and a practical way. This means uh, using our voice. This means using our platform, our positions to speak out for those who are oppressed. It means educating ourselves on present-day racism in our country. You know, like read a book. Right? We want to diversify who we listen to and read. We want to seek to understand the hurting that's happening. It, it means uh, seeking to find ways to get women and children out of sex slavery. It means volunteering and giving to organizations that are gospel-centered. But we're still, as a church, we're still exploring a lot of these in all areas. You know, if, we have, if you have questions about specific organizations, we'd love to talk with you about this, dialogue, different options. You know, we have to be really careful with organizations that, and do a lot of digging on what else they stand for. It's, it's helpful just to be well-informed. It, it also means caring for the unborn, in the womb and out of the womb, from womb to tomb. It means speaking up against people who abuse their power. Right, like politicians and coaches and police officers and teachers and family members. 
It also means telling those people in the same exact positions that stand up day in and day out to protect and defend justice rightly, who do it the right way, telling them thank you and encouraging them to endure. Part of seeking redemption is cheering on those who do it the right way, encouraging them. Being an advocate takes action. We want to use our voice and our platform for the oppressed in a tangible and biblical way. But New City Church, I want to be very clear on this. Exodus is far more than social justice. Social justice is important. It's it's necessary. God did it. Jesus did it. So we do it. But listen, social justice without gospel proclamation still leaves people in bondage and oppressed. Until we're worshiping Jesus through faith, we're still enslaved to our greatest form of oppression. The entire first chapter of Exodus is a picture of physical bondage. It's a picture of physical oppression and slavery, showing that redemption is needed. But what the rest of the book shows is that even when Israel comes out of their physical slavery, they were still in bondage of their spiritual oppression. Showing our our last and final point, God's redemption is most of all, God's redemption is spiritual. We've seen this this, uh, principle that redemption uh, comes uh, when those in power fight for, for the powerless. But what we can't miss here is that the book of Exodus is not just about physical redemption of Israel. This is far more than that. Exodus is a small picture of God's grand narrative of redemption for the world that we see happen through Jesus Christ. Exodus 1 is a, is a picture of physical oppression that shows a great picture of our spiritual oppression. When we look out and see tragic physical oppression, it's a picture of the darkness that, that it's in our world. It's a picture of the darkness that's inside our hearts. We're, we're grieved over injustice. We should be grieved over our sin. Physical redemption in our world begins when we, when we each search out the grave sin and injustice that comes within our hearts. What we see in Exodus is that Jesus, Jesus is the great Exodus. Jesus is the great deliverer, the great advocate, the great rescuer, the great redeemer. God delivered his people out of bondage to physical slavery, and Jesus delivers his people out of spiritual slavery, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What we see in Exodus paints a picture of God's full redemption revealed in Jesus Christ. And Exodus chapter 1 paints the picture of our need for a redeemer. The grave picture of slavery and oppression in Exodus 1 is a grave picture of the reality of our sin and spiritual bondage. But brothers and sisters, redemption is needed in our world physically and practically, but even more so spiritually in our hearts. We need to advocate. We need a rescuer. And brothers and sisters... We can praise God today that Jesus Christ came to rescue us, redeem us, and also to advocate for us. Brothers and sisters, may we advocate for the oppressed in a physical and practical way to paint a picture and allow us to point them to the one who provides ultimate redemption. When we look at Exodus 1 world, when we look out at our world that looks just like it looks similar to Exodus 1, may we rejoice and have hope knowing that God is working even when we can't see it. When the task at hand seems too difficult and too heavy, we as Christians, we grieve, we mourn, but we do not mourn without hope because God does not leave us in our grief and mourning. God has provided a rescuer and a redeemer in Jesus Christ that gives peace and advocacy in the midst of chaos. 
We can advocate for the oppressed both physically and spiritually, trusting that Jesus is advocating with us and for us. Brothers and sisters, we have good news today. Because Jesus is watching over, working, and seeking to redeem our Exodus 1 world. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We can trust that you are good. Father, we, we, we trust and we, we, we we're thankful that you are our redeemer, that you are our ultimate advocate. Father, that you have come to redeem uh, us, most importantly, from the oppression of sin. Father, I pray that as a response of that, that we would show how you redeem how you redeem the world from the oppression of sin, but would we, would we display it through a form of physical redemption? Father, we love you and we need you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.